Amen. Thank you, praise team. May we never forget, in the good times or in the bad, the Lord alone is our salvation. It's a good reminder. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13 this morning. Matthew chapter 13 is where we will be. We are continuing our series, The King and the Kingdom. We've been working through this series since the turn of the new year, and uh, for a good while we were working through these covenants uh, in the Old Testament and in the, then looking at the New Covenant and seeing how God is bringing about uh, His kingdom here on the earth, that He is restoring the kingdom that was lost in the fall. Um, he is bringing that back to completion. And someday there will be a physical reign. There will be a physical rule. There will be a physical kingdom in which God will once again dwell with us. This is one of the major themes throughout Scripture. This is one of the central ideas. Uh, but once we got to the New Testament, I wanted us to slow down in the book of Matthew and begin asking this question. What kind of kingdom is this? What kind of kingdom are we looking at? And Jesus teaches us in many parables to help us understand that very question. What kind of kingdom is this? And so last week we saw that this is a fruit-bearing kingdom as we looked at the parable of the seed and the sower. And that if we are good soil, if our hearts are hearts that can receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we are called we are expected and we will bear great fruit. We will bear much fruit. In fact, we will bear fruit beyond our abilities. And so we are asking God to help us be fruit-bearing people, people that share the gospel, people that live by faith and not by sight. But now I want us to look in Matthew chapter 13 again at a different set of parables. We're going to look at two parables this morning, the parable of the hidden treasure and we're also going to look at the parable of the pearl of great price. And uh, we're going to answer this question. What kind of kingdom, a hidden and priceless kingdom? A hidden and priceless kingdom. A few years ago, there was an incredibly popular advertising campaign that came out. Um, and I bet many of you have seen it or heard of it. It was the MasterCard advertising campaign, the priceless campaign. And uh, it came out in October 1997. The ads went something like this. There would be pictures of a young family and pictures of a sentimental moment. And uh, the one that really was burned in my head was uh, a picture, uh, slow motion pictures of a family at a baseball game. And they're there and they're delighting in each other and they're delighting in the game. And then the narrator comes on and he says something like this. He says, uh, baseball tickets. $115. Hot dogs for the family, $38. A foam number one finger, $22. The price of being with your son at his first major league game, priceless. There are some things in life money can't buy, but for everything else, there's MasterCard. Anybody seen that? Yeah. It's one of the most successful ad campaigns of all time. And I believe that they were successful for a reason. And the reason is this. They were right. There are some things in life that money truly cannot buy. And oftentimes those things are things that we can't actually see. We can't actually buy. We can't actually hold. There are things like the joy and innocence of a young child. There are things like memories of laughter with friends and with family. There are things like the embrace of a loved one. You see, in those moments, it's not about money. 
It's not about achievement. And really, it's not even about the magical experience. You see, MasterCard tapped into a desire that dwells deep within us. What is that desire? The desire is not just to live, but to truly live. To live life the way that we're designed to. You see, the priceless things really are unseen. Friendship, love, joy, integrity, family, peace. These are things that we can't see, but these are things that we need. In the same way, God offers us something hidden, but something priceless when he offers us the kingdom of heaven. You see, in fact, when he offers us the kingdom of heaven, he offers us the most priceless thing of all. As a part of that kingdom, what God is really offering us is himself, to know him, to be with him. And then, along with him, he gives us an entire kingdom filled with an eternal family, everlasting joy, unending hope, unwavering friendship, and all of these things wrapped inside the limitless love of God for all eternity. You see how beautiful it is what God offers us in his kingdom. Today, we're going to consider why God's kingdom is hidden And then we're also going to discover what makes his kingdom priceless. We're going to look at those two ideas together this morning. Uh, Go ahead and stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 13, we will look at uh, verses 44 through 46. The word of the Lord says this, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Holy God, we come before you uh, now, Father, and we thank you um, God, that your word is alive and active. God, that it pierces our hearts and renews our minds. Lord, that you use it through the power of your Holy Spirit to make us more into the image of your Son. And so, Lord, as we hear your word preached this morning, as we consider what it is that you would have to say to us, God, we ask that you would uh, open our minds. God, that you would prick our hearts. That you would help us to uh, truly see your kingdom for what it is. God, we love you, and we thank you that you are in this place. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. And so the main idea this morning is that God's kingdom is hidden to sinful eyes, but it is priceless because it is eternal, it is just, it is grace-filled, and it offers us the ultimate relationship. So God's kingdom is hidden to sinful eyes, but there are four things that we get, four benefits that come along with God's kingdom that make it priceless to us, that it is eternal, just, grace-filled, and offers us the ultimate relationship. We're going to look at that this morning. These two parables are interesting because as you read them, they are incredibly short. Two parables, three verses, but they are connected in a really important way. That word again in verse 45 tells us that these parables are connected. There uh, is a main idea, there's a main purpose that is flowing through both of these that Jesus is using these parables to make a very important point. 
And so the first thing that you and I need to see is that the fullness of God's kingdom is hidden. The fullness of God's kingdom is currently hidden today. Look at verse 44 one more time. Did you notice what kind of treasure it is that is in this field? Verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure, what? Hidden in a field. That is an important detail. You see, we live in a world that values the physical. We live in a world that that values the here and now. And so there's a temptation that we face in our culture when we talk about God's kingdom and the fact that it is a hidden kingdom. And that uh, temptation is this. If it's hidden, it must not be that important. Or this. If it's hidden, is it even real? I want to ask you that question. If something is hidden to our eyes, does that mean that it is automatically not real? What's the answer to that question? No, absolutely not, right? Our eyes cannot see light, but by light itself, we are enabled to see. Our eyes can't see the wind, but every day that we wake up, we see and experience the effects of the wind all around us. Our eyes can't see the chemicals that are in our brains that cause the emotions that we experience, like happiness or sadness or love, but each of us knows that sadness is as real as the sun itself. We've all experienced it and walked through it. So just because we cannot see something doesn't mean that it's not real. And in the same way, just because we do not see God's kingdom clearly here and now does not mean that it is not real. I've mentioned in another sermon that theologians talk about God's kingdom in this way, that it is already and not yet. It is both already and not yet. And what that means is this, that God's kingdom is already present here, today, now. It is happening. It is moving. It is taking new ground spiritually all around us every moment of every day. But it is not yet in that someday God in his perfect timing will end time as we know it. And he will reestablish his physical kingdom, his physical presence here on the earth. You see, our, our eyes cannot see God's kingdom but it is present every time a person obeys the voice of God rather than their sinful will. It is taking new ground every day when someone turns their life over to Jesus Christ in faith and repentance. God's kingdom is growing. God's kingdom is revealed, and we can see it in glimpses whenever a husband or a father chooses to sacrificially love his wife, chooses to sacrificially love his children, Jesus to sacrificially love his neighbor and even do as Jesus commanded to sacrificially love his enemy. You see, God's kingdom really is real and it's happening all around us every moment of every day. The problem is we often miss it. We often are unable to see it. The question that I want us to ask then is this. If God's kingdom is real, then why is it hidden? If God's kingdom is a a real thing, then why is it hidden from us today? The answer is one word, three letters long. Anyone know what it is? Sin. Capital S-I-N. Sin is the reason that we cannot see God's kingdom here today in a physical way. In fact, not only have we been uh, removed from God's kingdom, we lost that in the fall. But then there's also this sense in which uh, the power of sin is so effective. The 
power of the curse of sin is so consuming that it even darkens our minds. It even darkens our understanding. Listen to 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God. Indeed, he cannot understand them. 2 Corinthians 4.4 tells us this, that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they do not see the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, sin darkens our minds. It affects us in ways that we can't even really understand. Spiritual death does to us inwardly what physical death does to us outwardly. You see, just as a dead man cannot see, just as a dead man cannot hear, just as a dead man cannot speak, in the same way, those of us that are spiritually dead cannot see the kingdom of God. Those of us that are spiritually dead cannot hear the voice of God, and those of us that are spiritually dead cannot speak to him in a living, thriving relationship unless God intervenes on our behalf, unless God comes in his grace and his mercy and awakens us as a dead man would have to be awakened, then and only then can we see and know his kingdom. The fullness of God's kingdom is hidden to sinful people in a sin-riddled world, but make no mistake, it is no less real for that fact. So I want us to see the fullness of God's kingdom is currently hidden, but now I want us to shift and look at the following verses. Verses 44 through 46. We're going to look at the back half of verse 44. And we're going to focus on this idea. God's kingdom is priceless. God's kingdom is priceless. We're going to spend the rest of our time here looking at this idea. In verses 44b through 46. Where the Lord says this, Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. In just a moment, I'm going to walk us through four reasons that God's kingdom is priceless. Four reasons that we can see from Scripture that God's kingdom truly is priceless. But I want us to be incredibly clear about why we're going to talk about this this morning. I want us to be uh, clear about what it is I'm going to ask you to do today. What I'm going to ask you to do this morning is to consider, have I traded everything for this kingdom? Really? You see, I think our temptation is to come in here and to sit in a room and to hear a sermon and then to go out and maybe live our lives a little bit better than we would have had we not heard the sermon. But that's not what Jesus is saying in these parables to us. You know what Jesus is saying to you and to me today? He's demanding, sell out. Sell all that you are. Surrender everything you have to me. Come after me because my kingdom is worth it. My kingdom is priceless. And so what I'm asking you today is to just consider, am I really a sold-out person? Am I really a Jesus freak? What if Riverview Baptist Church launched some 350 Jesus freaks out into our community after the service? You see, I'm convinced that if we did that, we could turn this community upside down for Jesus Christ. And what Jesus desires and what Jesus expects is nothing short of that. So this morning, rather than saying, oh yeah, I've done that, Michael. 
I want to challenge you to ask this question. What is my next step in selling out for Jesus Christ today? What is it that he is calling me to do? I want us now to look at four reasons why his kingdom is priceless. Four reasons why his kingdom is worth selling out for. First, God's kingdom is priceless because it is truly eternal. God's kingdom is priceless because it is truly eternal. Um, One of the things that happens as we see and consider that God's kingdom is present and not fully established yet, one of the things that happens is we can actually see that uh, God's kingdom is true, not just in people who believe in Jesus Christ, but we can actually see that God's kingdom is real in people who don't believe in Jesus Christ. We can actually find that God's kingdom is revealed even in them, but in a different way. Here's what I mean. Here's why I say that. I once had an atheist tell me, he said, uh, I don't need your heaven. You see, he said, honestly, if there was no sickness and there was no war, there were no famines, no misunderstanding, no racism, no suffering, no sorrow, Michael, I wouldn't need to go to heaven. I could just live here. I don't think I would need anything more than this life that I have right here, right now. And I looked him in the eye and I said, you know what? What you've just described is closer to the biblical description of heaven than you could ever imagine. You see, here's my point. Eternity was already burning inside of his heart. Eternity burns in the heart of every person, saved or unsaved. It is there. Don't take my word for it. Turn your Bible to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Leave your finger here. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, one verse that we're going to look at, verse 11. The word of the Lord says this, talking about God. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Did you see it? God has put eternity into man's heart. And so whether a person knows Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior or does not, the fact that their hearts burn... The fact that their hearts desire something more beyond this life is a gift from God himself. It is a gift from the good king to help each of us understand this world is not my home. It's designed to help us yearn and to search and to look for the good king that we've been created for. In his book, Heaven, Randy Alcorn says it this way, All our lives we've been dreaming of this new earth. Whenever we see beauty in water, wind, flower, deer, man, woman, or child, we catch a glimpse of heaven. Just like the Garden of Eden, the new earth will be a place of sensory delight, breathtaking beauty, satisfying relationships, and personal joy. And this is what you and I need to hear and be reminded of, friends. When we get to heaven, we are not going to be floating around on clouds, bored for the rest of eternity, okay? If that's what your view of heaven is, I just want to help you out this morning and help you understand that's not a biblical view of heaven. The way that the Bible describes heaven is that someday there will be a new heaven 
and a new earth, and what we usually think of as heaven, the heavenly city, New Jerusalem, will come down out of the clouds, out of heaven, and God himself will dwell with us in this new Jerusalem on a new and perfect earth. This is the promise of eternity. And so when we look at this world and we enjoy its beauty, when we go out and soon we'll see hundreds of thousands of people coming to enjoy the beauty of God's creation at this lake, what they are seeking after, what they are chasing after, is a taste of what each of us has been made for, heaven. When I say those words, I think the thing that stirs in us, that that emotion that we feel, that longing for hope, the yearning for peace, and the craving inside of us that life not be destroyed— That is a desire that God has given us. That is a desire that the King has planted in you to help you see. Look up. Look up, child. This life is short, and I have designed you. I have made you. I have created you for more. You see, truly, God has placed eternity in our hearts, and His kingdom is priceless because it is eternal. Next, I want us to see that God's kingdom is priceless because it is totally just. God's kingdom is totally just. We often don't talk about God's justice a ton. A lot of times in churches you hear uh, much about grace, and you're going to hear about that some this morning. But I want us to pause and talk about the justice of God because it is crucial. It is necessary You see, as a part of making all things new, God is also going to make all things right. God is a God of justice, and we need to understand that his justice is good. His justice is desirable. His justice is praiseworthy. In 1997, the Democratic Republic of the Congo experienced a political revolution. A A man by the name of Emma was caught in the midst of this revolution with his family. And so he, his wife, and three daughters left everything that they had behind and fled on foot, walking weeks and weeks and weeks to another nation, the nation of Uganda. And there, as refugees in a refugee camp, they lived a miserable existence for months. Living inside of a single-room tent, surrounded by the stench of human waste, surviving on one meal every two days. They lived there, and after some time, after being released, he and his family tried to start over and tried to start a new life, and Emma felt the call to go to seminary, and so he did. He entered into a seminary in Uganda, and as he was there, um, he met several other pastors. They had a prayer meeting in the seminary library, Uh, and there were people in the library as they were praying. But during that meeting, Emma opened his heart, and he began to share the story of his life and what he had experienced, the violence, the atrocities, the abuse of his children. He started to openly weep despite the fact that men in Africa, in this culture, were never supposed to weep in public. It was a sign of disgrace, a sign of weakness. And then, through his tears, Emma said these sobering words. He said, you know, I could never believe the gospel if it were not for the judgment of God. 
because I will never get justice in this world. But I couldn't cope if I was never going to see justice done ever. You see, in America, I think we often recoil from God's justice. And the reason is actually very simple. Many of us have never actually had to walk through serious injustice. Few of us had, had to truly experience the kind of injustice that Emma and his family have. But millions of people all over this planet, millions of people all over the globe recognize that justice is good, and in fact, God's justice is great. They recognize, yes, of course God's mercy, of course His grace are better, but we need His perfect justice on our behalf. So, for all the hurt, for all the harm, that this life has caused you, friend, you can rest assured that there is a just and perfectly just God who sees you. There is a just and perfectly just God who knows you. And here's the truth. Every sin will be punished. Every sin will be dealt with. It will either be punished in the cross of Jesus Christ and it will be dealt with as the wrath of God was poured out then and there, on the behalf of those who have trusted in Jesus or, sadly, those that do not repent and those that do not turn will face the perfect justice of a holy God when they stand before him in judgment. But listen to me. You see, we live in a world where we don't ever experience perfect justice, and so sometimes our hearts struggle with that. We live in a country even now, as good as our nation is, where there are unjust judgments that are dealt out every day. We have never experienced the kind of justice that God offers us. We have never experienced complete and total justice that is good and right and true. But this is what is offered to us in the kingdom of God. God is a God who is just, and someday we will walk and live in a kingdom of perfect justice. Thank God for that. That is good news for those of us who know him. So God's kingdom is priceless because it truly is totally just. Next, I want us to see that God's kingdom is priceless because it is grounded in grace. So there is a balance here. We have the the justice of God that will deal with the difficulties, the misfortunes that we walk through in life, but then we also have the grace of God that we all so desperately need. If you're here today and you are even remotely realistic about the life you've lived, you know that you need the grace of God, don't you? There should, every head should be doing this right now, okay? Yes, I need God's grace in my life. Why? Because the reality is, you and I need to be forgiven for things that don't deserve forgiveness. You and I need to be accepted in ways that, if we're honest, we don't deserve acceptance. We deserve punishment. We deserve judgment for the things that we've done. We deserve to be held accountable. We all do. Statistically, Stanford University ranks as one of the toughest schools in the United States of America uh, to receive an acceptance letter from. In 2017, listen to this, 
497 students applied, and of that 42,500 students, only 2,140 were accepted, roughly 5%. You see, an ACT score of 33 or higher uh, will put you into the top 50% of applicants, is what their website says. But then the website also says this. However, the average score of accepted students is 35 Now, that doesn't sound like that big of a deal until you know what a perfect score on the ACT is. Does anyone know? 36. This website goes on. Accepted students will also need a robust resume of extracurricular activities, leadership qualities, references, and recommendations, as well as an average GPA of 4.18 out of 4.0. So here's the deal. Do you want to go to Stanford? It's easy. All you got to do, be perfect. All right? Just be perfect, and you're in. I don't know about you, but when I read that list, what comes to my mind is, uh uh-oh, I don't measure up. And the truth of the matter is this, friends. Life is full of things. Life is full of places that tell us, "Uh uh-oh, you don't measure up. Uh Uh-oh, you don't measure up. You're not the parent that you need to be. Uh-oh, you don't measure up. You don't earn the money that you think you should earn. Uh-oh, you don't measure up. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ stands in stark contrast to Stanford University. You see, to heaven, there is no entrance exam in which we've got to get there and earn it by our own abilities. Instead, God accepts sinners not on the basis of our abilities, but on the basis of his mercy and grace because his perfect son has died in our place. The entrance exam is simply this. Do you know and love and live for my son, Jesus Christ? If the answer is yes, you're in. Regardless of past experiences, regardless of shortcomings and failures, regardless of the sin that you've walked through, if you know and you love and you live for my son, welcome to my kingdom. Friends, that is why God's kingdom is priceless. Because we could never earn it, and we don't have to earn it, because Jesus has earned it for us. Unlike other religions... Christianity is not the story of us becoming good enough to get to God. Instead, it is the story of God graciously getting to us in spite of us. Every day, God is forgiving sinners who would not, should not, and could not be forgiven apart from His grace. God's kingdom is priceless because that grace is extended to you even now. Have you received that grace? Have you accepted that grace? And listen to me, Christian. Are you living in the power of that grace? It is available to you here and now. Lastly, I want us to see this. God's kingdom is priceless because it offers us the ultimate relationship. God's kingdom is priceless because it offers you and me the relationship that our hearts yearn for and desire. The entire story of Scripture is that we once dwelt with God, and then we sinned and lost our right to dwell with Him. Then God came, 
in Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us and dwelt among us and died for us so that we could once again dwell with him. Do you see the emphasis there? Do you see the emphasis on God with us in relationship with his people? God desires to dwell with you if you are his child. And God's kingdom is priceless because the good king will one day once again dwell with us. And listen to me, the good king never fails. He never fails. Listen to Psalm 63.3. Your unfailing love is better than life itself. Can your heart say that this morning? Honestly. God, your unfailing love for me is better than life itself. How could the psalmist say that? I believe it's because he was seeing God rightly in that moment. He was seeing his love correctly. That word unfailing is so important. Your unfailing love is better than life. You see, the love of God never changes. How is that possible? It's because God is immutable, is the word theologically. It means that God doesn't change. And the reason God doesn't change is because in every way and in every aspect, He is infinite. So there is no fluctuation in God's emotions. God is always perfectly furious at sin. God is always perfectly, infinitely, limitlessly loving. And so, God's love for us doesn't change. His love is constant for you today. Here's why that is wonderful news. It doesn't matter what you do tomorrow. God loves you. He won't love you any less if you do right. He won't love you any, excuse me, any less if you do wrong. He won't love you any more if you do right. His love is there. His love is unfailing despite your performance, despite your circumstances. Your love is unfailing and it is better than life. And so here's the deal. Every other person on this planet will let you down. Every other person on this planet will fail you. No other relationship can fulfill you the way that a relationship with the King of Glory can. As special as a best friend may be, as wonderful a gift as children are, as sacred as a healthy, loving marriage is, those people will fail you. They will hurt you. They will sin against you. They will let you down. But there is one... One king, one God, one Father who never fails. He is there, he sees, he knows, and he understands every need that you have. Once our hearts clearly see this king of glory, I believe that we will gladly trade all that we have to be a part of his kingdom. The problem is that far too often we don't see him as we should. We don't see him as the Bible describes him. You see, I think we often think of God as someone that we're going to get to heaven and, and we're going to run up to and hug. And I would say there's nothing wrong with seeing Jesus as a friend of sinners because he is. But we also need to balance that uh, sentiment with the truth of God's word. It is incredibly important. 
God's word tells us this. Let me just remind you of the majesty of this king that invites you to be a part of his kingdom. It tells us this, that God dwells in unapproachable light. What does that mean? It means that God's glory is unapproachable. That means inaccessible, unable to draw near to. Why? Because he is holy in a way that our minds cannot imagine. Just as if you and I looked at the sun, if we stared at the sun with our limited, finite little eyes, you know what happens to our eyes? They're burned. They're destroyed. And in the same way, if you and I were to stand before holy God in his unhindered, unfettered glory, we would be burned to dust and ashes. Bible tells us that he sits on a throne and that he is high and lifted up. And when Isaiah saw this vision of the Lord, when he saw him high and lifted up, listen to what Isaiah said. He said, woe is me. I am undone for I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm dead because of this holy king. Bible tells us that the sound of those who worship him in his throne room is like the sound of roaring rapids or crashing waterfalls. That he numbers the sands on the seashore and holds the planet in the palm of his hand. That there are angels who fly around him and they have six wings. Why? Because with four of those wings they are covering themselves. It's only two that they use to fly. Why do they cover themselves? They cover themselves. They cover their faces with two of them. Why? Because they cannot look upon the splendor and the glory of God. Why do they cover their feet? Because they cannot expose themselves to his radiance. And they fly around him for all eternity and they cry, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. And they will continue to do so for all eternity. And rest assured, friends, they are not bored in his presence. This is the king who invites you to be a part of his kingdom. I want us to close with this question. Why do both parables require that the purchaser trade all that he has? Have you noticed that? If you look at both parables... Both times, the person who is acquiring either the treasure hidden in the field or acquiring the pearl of great price, they have to trade all that they own. But look at verse 44, the back half. Then in his what? Joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. What is the point of selling everything? I believe that the point of selling everything in these parables is simply to show where your heart is. Listen to me. Matthew 6, 21, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So Jesus is telling us, he's telling us to examine our hearts and to ask, really, where is my treasure? Am I willing to sell all that I have to be a part of this kingdom? Have you gladly Did you notice? In his joy, he sells it. Have you gladly made that trade? Or is there something else you're still holding on to today? You see, in the United States of America today, the perfect wedding costs roughly $35,000 on average. Raising two kids from birth to college in the United States of America, 
$466,000. As a parent of two children, that terrifies me, okay? (laughs) A new three-bedroom home, $200,000. New iPhones for the family, $3,200. A comfortable retirement by age 60, $1.1 million. So the total cost of the middle-class average American dream, $2.2 million. Listen to me. Realizing that this life is fleeting and trading it all to find redemption, trading it all to find joy, trading it all to find peace with God, priceless. Make that trade, friend. Do not let this world deceive you into thinking that the next vacation, the next event, the next raise is somehow going to satisfy your soul. Your soul longs for eternity, and there is one infinite king who can satisfy it. His name is Jesus Christ. Trade it all, join his kingdom, and find the true life you've been made for. Let's pray together.